Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power with Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780. All four lectures can be found at elma.pardes.org. For other digital content, please visit us online. I'm Leon Morris, I'm the president of Pardes, and it's a pleasure to welcome you or to welcome you back to this third lecture in the Brettler Lecture Series uh, featuring uh, Aviva Zornberg. I want to thank the Brettler family for making this possible, uh, Dina and your, your siblings, uh, as, a, uh, as a beautiful tribute to the memory of your, of your parents, Zichonam uh, Libracha. Um, I had the opportunity of discovering the profound and masterful teaching of Aviva Zornberg when I was a student at Pardes in the year program uh, 1995-96, when, I think it was Monday nights, every Monday night uh, we gathered here in uh, in the Beit Midrash uh, week after week. And my fellow students and I experienced a kind of expansion of mind and a deepening of emotion through her teaching. And every class could make you cry and laugh and heighten your awareness and allowed us to see that the Torah addresses itself anew to the questions of what it means to be a human being. And uh, this is what I experienced then and what I, and I suspect many of the people in this Beit Midrash, have experienced in studying with Aviva time and time again. Uh, Learning with Aviva is really a form of poetry. Uh, Thinking of the pasuk from Sefer Devarim, from the book of Deuteronomy, Va'ata kitvu lachem et hashira hazot v'lamdat b'nei Yisrael sima b'fihem. Write for yourselves this poem, this song, and teach it to the children of Israel and place it in our mouths. Uh, You do that uh, masterfully. And uh, I had the privilege for many years, for a decade, of helping to uh, provide a platform for uh, Viva Zornberg to teach in Manhattan uh, a couple of times a year. And I'm so honored and pleased to be able to welcome her back to this Beit Midrash at Pardes. We are not going to be laughing too much this evening. (laughs) Even so, the subject is Esther and Purim. Uh, I happen to have a tragic view of Megillat Esther and of Purim in general, um, and that laughter and tears are more or less the the other side of the coin from each other. I have a quote here from, from none other than Lord Byron. If I laugh at any mortal thing, tis that I may not weep. That is, sometimes we laugh because if we didn't laugh, we would cry. And so we laugh on Purim, but I think there are, there are, there's an ocean of tears underneath. And so I want to begin with an anecdote, which uh, has nothing to do with Miguel Atestere, but as you will see, I hope, will pick up a main theme. And I'm going to be talking about an article written by David Weiss-Halivny, Um, It came out quite a few years ago, writing about his adolescent experience in the labor camp at Wolfsburg during the war. 
He remembers it as an adolescent. He has very poignant memories of that time. And they circle around one thing. He says what he remembers particularly was that they were allowed to have Rosh Hashanah davening uh, in the camp. And he remembers how uh, he bought with, with bread um, the, the, the written nusach of the Rosh Hashanah service, which was written on cement bags um, in order to have to preserve a sense of the traditional nusach. Uh, that, that was the chazan, actually, the chazan who was uh, Satmar chazan, um, what was his name, Naftali Stern, bought this, this nusach um, for bread. And then Vaisa Livni remembers the one moment that particularly characterized tefillah in Wolfsburg. And that was the moment in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah when we say, Mloch al kol haolam kulo bichvodecha. God and God of our fathers reign over the whole world in your glory. And he remembers the particular passion with which people said that prayer. And obviously the meaning that was exuding from the prayer was that in some way God has let go of the reins. A sense that God is no longer in Malchus, that he is no longer reigning over the world. For whatever reason, for whatever large theological reason, he then goes on to explore why such times occur in history. Times in which, but we call it Hester Panim, in which God is no longer at the center of things and God seems in some way to ignore us. And things go on, everything goes on in the world in a decentered and incoherent manner. Who has taken over the reins of power? Right? The devil himself. The devil himself is reigning now. And the, the passionate prayer on Rosh Hashanah was asking God to take over again. A sense of the distorted center. that The center has gone awry. Um, I called this talk, as you may see, I, I wrote, Mere Anarchy is Loosed Upon the World. I don't know if you recognize the quote. It's from the Irish poet Yeats, W.B. Yeats. And he has these famous lines, which again I want to put at the beginning of our discussion. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So things fall apart, there's a lack of a center and a sense that there is no king to hold things at the center. Which of course, in a traditional sense, that was what always held things. The king in the world, the sun in the sky, the lion among the animals. Everyone was in, arranged around that central force. And the idea that in our age, Yeats is writing about this 20th century, uh, there is a sense of things falling apart. And these have become classic lines to describe our reality, a reality that hasn't improved uh, in that sense. And that's the reality that it reminds me, of course, of one of the central traditions, traditional perceptions about the Megillah, about Megillah Tester. And that's a question of what's absent in Megillah, in Megillah Tester. Right? There, is a very, um, there is a very colorful story, the Arabian Nights kind of story. Um, it engages us, but the one thing that's absent is God's name. Right? That's something that you know. So someone noticed that the name of God is, is missing from the text. But of course, that's not the reason that, that's, that children are told about this phenomenon of God's name being missing. 
Clearly, the absence of God's name is meant to suggest something about an incoherence, that there is something about the world that is being described in the Megillah that lacks God. And the question now of looking at where, where can one see in the story, in the narrative, the lack of God, the sense that all is going well, apparently, and yet nothing is going well. The expression that uh, is used by uh, one of the sages in the Gemarayan Cholin to, uh, to find a kind of place in metaphysics, in metaphysics and in history, for the heroine Esther. Esther Minayin, Min HaTorah. Where, does es where is Esther mentioned in the Torah itself? Now that's, of course, an anachronism. You don't expect to find Esther's name in the Torah. She lived way afterwards. And yet, it's as if looking for some kind of primary indication in the first books of the Torah, where, 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 the foundational books, something that suggests that one day there will be an Esther who will be in a situation of an almost unimaginable kind. And the pasuk that's quoted, of course, as some of you may remember, is Haster Astir at Panai Bayom Hahu. On that day, looking forward to some very hard day in the future, in a, on a day of, of a blighted time, on that day, I will indeed hide my face. Haster Astir, Esther. So Esther becomes a kind of code name, in a way, for a state of things for a condition without a center. And mere anarchy, mere means sheer, uh, in Yeats's language, yes, sheer anarchy. And Esther, of course, is fated to be the queen of this system, of this world, with all its 127 realms, right? It's a proud empire you have in this, in this, at the beginning, right away, with at its head a man called Achashverosh who is sitting on the throne. He's sitting on his throne. And the Midrash immediately says, rather skeptically, he's sitting rather tenuously. The feeling that he doesn't really belong on the throne. He's about to slip off uh, at any moment. And therefore, he is driven, because he is so very insecure, because, according to the Midrash again, he doesn't even come from a royal line. He doesn't have any of the foundations of dynasty and a sense of, of roots in the past. He has, he's therefore driven in his insecurity to try to shore up his power uh, in, every way, in every way possible. Even to the extent of, and I'm going to, I'm going to be bringing in Midrashim left, right, and center now without any sense of, um, what can I say, um, purity. You know, I'm not going to try to keep to the, to the text itself because these Midrashim, I think, are shocking and enlightening. So one of the things the Midrash says is that that throne he was trying to sit on was actually the throne of King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, and that Achashverosh had been involved in the sack of Jerusalem, that he had be taken, a, taken a role in the Chorban of Yerushalayim. And when he had been soldiering there in Yerushalayim, he had seen this beautiful and extremely significant throne of Shlomo HaMelech, with all, every detail was symbolic, every detail spoke of true power. And he envied it, and he desired it for himself. And he brought it back, he imported it, you know, back, back to his country. And therefore, any chance he ever had of sitting on it was bound to be somewhat precarious. 
he really was not made for that throne. But it's a throne whose prestige, in some way, he hankers for. You know, it's like I saw a nice throne in, uh, in, in Vogue magazine. I think I'll have that. That'll give me a good reputation. Well, that's a little bit too trivial. I think he recognizes the power, somewhere God, behind this power, and he wants it for himself. Now, <clears throat> if we think then about Haster Astir, on that day, God said, there will be a hiding of my face. I will indeed hide God's, my face because of the evil that they have done, that, 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 that B'nai Israel will, will have done. That sounds like a punishment. That is, such a terrible time will come as retribution to failure in one way or another by the Jewish people. Weissel uh, Levni doesn't like that idea, and he sets his whole essay against the idea of punishment, that all the destruction and all the lack of God in the world has nothing to do with an actual penalty against the Jewish people. Therefore, he doesn't like the expression haster panim. He says that is associated with punishment. Well, here I have to beg to disagree with great respect, because I have tremendous admiration, of course, for, for Weissel Levni. But there are verses which talk about the hiding of God's face, not in a situation of punishment. On the contrary, lama panecha tastir, right? In, in Psalms, Psalm uh, 44. Why do you hide your face? Why do you seem to forget or ignore my affliction, my pain? Now that clearly has nothing to do with sin. On the contrary, we're asking why when we say that, meaning we're mystified. We're baffled. How is it that the world suddenly finds itself so hollow, somehow that it has a hollow center, and you are just not there where you should be? Right? That's a very direct reproach to God in the form of a rhetorical question, lama, why, why? Weissel Livni says very beautifully, he remembers that time in the camp, and he says very beautifully, and, it, and really it's, a, it's quite a startling claim, he can say it, um, he says, there is no time, however bad, in which someone doesn't pray. Right? We were those someones who prayed at that time. I don't know how he knows that there's no time at which someone doesn't pray, but I ask about the Megillah. Does anyone pray in the Megillah? Is there any sense in the Megillah of prayer, prayer to God? God is hiding his face, but what are human beings doing? And at first... At first blush, it seems really as if there is no prayer. God is not mentioned, and no one prays to him. It seems to follow, in some sense. Except, again, that in the Midrash, and that's a very cl classic Midrash, Esther is, is assumed to have prayed. When? At the most precarious, uh, frightening moment of the story, at the moment where, with her life in her hands, she walk, goes into, she unsummoned, to the king's chamber, and waits to know exactly what his scepter does. Does his scepter go up towards her, or does it not? On that hangs life and death. That's, in, of course, in the text. And the Midrash adds there that she prayed as she was walking in. She prayed, Keli, Keli, Lama Azaftani. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That is, it's a prayer, again, of Lama that I feel in some way abandoned, and that, that arouses our, immediately our curiosity. Is that how she was feeling when she walked into there? I might have thought she was walking in with some sense of courage and faith, that she had agreed to, to, uh, to Mordechai 
to Mordechai's request, a very aggressive request. We're going to be looking at how, how Mordechai gets her to accept uh, taking on this very dangerous role. But what the Midrash stresses is that in some essential way she feels abandoned. She doesn't have a feeling of God's presence. And the way the, the, the Midrash puts it, and of course it puts a tragic pall over the whole story, that she doesn't walk in just, you know, kind of very full of herself. It's not like that at all. And she walks in, and the expression that the Midrash uses is, Nistalka mimena shchina. That just at that moment, you know, just before she might have had a sense of God's presence, privately, in her heart, but as she walks in, it abandons her. And in some sense, this is the heart of the story. And it's, I want to argue that this is the heroism of Esther. This is Esther not in a moment of hubris, let's say, to put it very uh, on the other end of the spectrum, but when all hubris, when all lies abandon her, where all fictions abandon her. And I'm going to be looking at fictions, how this whole kingdom of Ahasuerus is supported by fictions, by, 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 by lies, essentially. And therefore, the moment of spiritual victory, in some sense, is when stripped of those lies, stripped of those fictions, Esther, nevertheless, does what she has to do and goes in on the mere chance. You know, it's like casting lots. It sounds like, right? Isn't that the movement against the wave of chance? After all, she, she had said herself to Mordechai, we'll look at that scene more closely, when he was pressing her to, to go and plead for her people. That this is the moment it was all about. Yeah? Maybe, we'll see. Maybe it's just for this that you came into, into the palace. And she answers there. She says, Achat dato lahamit. Everyone knows, she says, everyone knows that anyone who comes unsummoned to the king, achat dato lahamit. There can be only one outcome, and that is death. Unless the king stretches out his scepter. Now that doesn't sound like 50-50. It doesn't, it doesn't actually sound like, like even odds, even. Right? It, it sounds as if the, the stakes are against the odds. Yeah, the odds, the odds are against her. And she feels that very strongly. And moreover, she says, just to emphasize that sense of like casting lots or the, or the fall of chance, which is, is what she's in the midst of here, not a God-directed scene, but something in which the danger is palpable. Moreover, she says, I haven't been summoned to the king, you know, in the way that the women were summoned. Uh, to the king this 30 days. Actually, I should rephrase what I just said. Obviously, she wasn't just one of the women in the harem. She was the queen. So it wasn't quite, quite that. But nevertheless, you know, it's really up to him, obviously. Um, and he hasn't been interested enough for 30 days, which doesn't bode well for any sense of what I'm calling fictional, a fi the fiction of providence. Now, this is not going to be easy. That is the idea that, that Mordechai moots, that really, if you think of it from a providential point of view, it could be that this is why you came into this role, for this very moment. It was all heading towards this moment when you will be able to save the people. And what we do in general, and when we read, is 
ignore two essential words. I see I'm dealing with this scene before I ever meant to get to it, um, but since I've started, let me continue. Uh, and the two essential words that Mordecai speaks are me dea. Who knows if it wasn't for just this moment that you, that you came into the, the palace, that you had this, this, this strange uh, movement in your life. Now, that already casts a different light on the whole thing. It's not just he is assuring her and encouraging her and inspiring her. Look, this is your providential moment. Um, he is actually saying it in a very realistic way. He's saying empirically, we don't know. Who knows? But maybe it could be. So there's here a kind of fiction of a fiction. You know, it's a hypothesis. Hold that hypothesis in your mind without any guarantee. There is, there is no guarantee at all. Now I come back to, to the beginning. This book and the prayer of Esther, according to the Midrash. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Lies at the heart of the book. What, is, what can we say then, <coughs> excuse me, about, let's, let's look at the, your source page. What can we say about the classic passage from the Rambam, right? We're changing gear now, and we're looking at, really, at law now. What, what, what will be the law of, of, the, of the Megillah and of the story of Purim and the celebration of Purim itself in the times of the Mashiach? It's a kind of impractical question for the time being. But what will, will we still observe Purim in the time of the Mashiach, in Messianic times? And this is set against a, a challenging statement that all the other, number one on your page, uh, Rambam is, is citing uh, the Gemara and Sanhedrin, all the books of the prophets and all the scriptures, that is two-thirds of Tanakh, everything but the Torah itself, will no longer be in currency, will no longer be relevant, how to translate batel, will somehow no longer be valid. I would like to translate it, will have lost their vitality in the times of Mashiach. That is, all, most of Tanah, everything except the Torah, will basically no longer, no longer be read as if it's really about us when it comes to the times of the Mashiach. In some way, it'll, be, it'll become outdated, except for Megillah Esther and the books of the Torah. And suddenly you have this strange exception. This, of all books, which doesn't have God's name in it, will be a survivor into the times of the Mashiach. And we'll still keep reading it. The Ravid at the end here comments on this idea of certain books being out and certain books being in, which is all very strange. Uh, and he'll say it really refers to whether the books will still be read, these texts will still be read in synagogue, in public, if they will be part of the ritual. And none of the other, none, no, no selections from the other books will, will be, still be read, but only Megillah and the five books of Moses. The five books of Moses, I understand. But Megillah to stare. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a puzzling, it's a puzzling statement that has had a lot of ink spilt over it. Um, it's, it's something that Darshanim uh, loved, to, loved to address. What is it about this book, especially in terms of, of what we just said? The book in which God is absent in a meaningful sense. From here, I want to look 
at a very different text. Have a look at number two, the Svatimet. He also says something challenging in a different mode. This Svatimet is a great Hasidic commentary on the Torah and and uh, and and by the way on other other books as well. He starts off by saying, asking, why is it that we don't officially bank feast and rejoice at night on Purim, only during the day? The mitzvah is during the day. The answer is, because the performance of the mitzvot of feasting and rejoicing can only come after you have read the text. The public reading of the text has to come first, and then you can rejoice. Now, this is purely legally. And since the public reading of the text officially is during the day, that's the major public reading, you can only start rejoicing um, in terms of really backed by, by the law. You, can, you start rejoicing only during the day. Any rejoicing you do in the evening is on your own, on your own free time. But the, 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 the commanded rejoicing is after, and having made that legal point, he then makes a point of a different kind, he says. Because it's only after we finish reading that there is aroused through the reading the illumination of the miracle. That is, the miracle wakes up. The light of the miracle, which has been dormant, till that point, you can, you can, you can, you can live through Purim till the actual reading. And, but when the, the Megillah is read, something begins to stir, which is called the sense of a miracle, which has been in some way dormant. And I have to say, it's pretty dormant for me most of the time. You know, if I think about the Megillah, it's hard to think of what the miracle is at any time. And even on Purim, till you've actually engaged with the text of the Megillah, there's something about reading the text of the Megillah that arouses the miracle, this, this sleepy miracle, this miracle that doesn't want to, get, to wake up. It's, it's an, unlikely, an unlikely candidate uh, as a miracle. And he makes that point with full Hasidic fervor, that question of arousal and awakening, a sense somewhere that life returns to Purim only after we've read the text. And I have to say that that is true to my experience, my personal experience that there is something about actually reading this wild text, this text in which, and let me just say a few words about what it means to have a king who is a non-king on the throne. How does that affect the whole story and the whole way the story is told? Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the sages call, call Achashverosh Melech Shote, um, a stupid king, or even more graphically, melech hafachvach. I like that word in Hebrew. Hafachvach um, means reversible. It means volatile. Hafachvach means he's constantly changing his mind. He can think something one minute, and then the next minute he's changed his mind. That is the opposite of what you need in a king. If there's one thing you need in a king, this kind of king, a traditional notion of a king, is a solid center is someone who knows why he makes decisions and holds to his decisions. Whereas what we have here is someone who is blown by every wind. Yeah? It only takes some courtier saying something uh, sarcastic to make him decide that Vashti has to go. Off with her head. It's not, only, it's not necessarily his decision, it's that someone, one of his advisors. Now, he has an extraordinary 
communications system. I want to just focus on that. How do you know this is officially and formally in the Megillah? This is a world which is very highly um, technologized. There's no such word. That is, it's 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 controlled by the latest in technology. The latest in technology was fast horses fast horses, fast camels, with all kinds of pseudo-Persian words in the text to give you a sense of the high-tech nature of his systems. That these horses could race from one, from one side of the world to the other, 127 states. That, that was actually the whole of the known world uh, at that time. And he had amazing systems of carrying messages from one place to the other. Um, with couriers, fast couriers, with strange words that are not Hebrew, but pretend in some way to be Persian, to give you a sense of the archaic, of something archaic and very authentic, uh, somewhere to dress himself up. That's one dimension. Another dimension is the huge banquets that he gives. The banquets are intended to show, again, through using mystical numbers, first of all, seven days, everyone knows that seven days is a magic, a magic number, to give you a sense that this is a kingdom in which meaning is powerful, and the king's meanings and the king's intentions are powerful, and he now lays on an ostentatious banquet to laharot, to show off, kind of visually, it's a specular feast, that everyone can come and admire all the beautiful kelim mikelim shonim, all the various vessels. Right? A strange idea that everyone has to come and to look at all the kitchenware, as it were. It's so gleaming and so beautiful and of the best quality. It always makes me think of Vogue magazine, those, uh, those descriptions of the clothing and the brocades and the, and the, and the, the, the materials and the kelim. All that is by way of demonstrating his status his status and his stature. But when it comes to actually functioning as a king, something very different happens. And that is that he decides at one moment under the influence of Haman to destroy the Jewish people. And then, sometime later, under the influence of Esther and Mordechai, he decides that he's not going to destroy the people. But so forceful is his decree. Once a decree, a royal decree has been issued, it can never be uh, annulled. It can never, that is, he is, it's the idea of the king's two bodies, who he is as a person and who he is as a formal symbolic figure. His formal symbolic power is such that once he has issued a, a decree, he can at no time in the future withdraw that decree. It's been issued by um, an all power, an omnipotent king. And so he has to simply send another decree giving the Jewish people the right to fight against their, their fate. But there's clearly something strange going on in this tension between the king's two bodies. That was a, it's a, it's a, it's a concept in European, in European history. That the idea was that in some, some way, even when the king dies, it's just his personal body that dies, but he's left in effigy to represent what he should have been representing in his life. Now, this sense of things, the sense also of time, seven days, 180 days for the second feast, it's almost grotesque, the length of the feast, and the idea then of what happened, I can't help sharing this, this bit, if you don't remember it, what would happen to the young girls who came for the competition? 
for the beauty competition about who would become queen. Who, what is the criterion for how you choose a queen of a large empire? Well, it was six months in certain one kind of oil and six months in myrrh. That is, she gets, I hate to say it, but marinated. Each, 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 each woman gets marinated six months in one uh, dressing and six months in another dressing. And after that, she can go to the king for her audition. Now, the sense of a year with this kind of preparation for one night, a year against one night, and something is wrong here. Something that's a, there is a misuse of time here. Time is simply, has no weight at all here. And I want to bring into, into play here um, a notion that Frank Kermode, the eminent British critic, um, put forth in his book, The Sense of an Ending. And I want to make use of this to move us onwards. He says, the sense of an ending, the title is A Sense of an Ending. And he's talking about, first of all, the way that time changes, the experience of time changes, according to what you expect to happen at the end. Uh, for instance, if you're reading a book, if you, have, if you know it's a comedy, then the way you read the material leading towards the ending is very different. It's going to have a happy ending. It's very different from the way you read if you know that the ending is not going to be good. That is, the time in between, right? If you know, have some sense of the ending, right? The time in between is affected. Is, 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 is. He uses the, the, the model of the ticking of a clock. It's a very simple but effective model. Everyone knows that a clock says, we tell, we tell the children that a clock says tick-tock, tick-tock, and so on. And of course we know that that's a fiction. The clock doesn't say tick-tock, it actually says tick-tick-tick-tick. That is endless, meaningless time. Successive time. It just goes on and on and on. But we like to imagine that there is a tick and there is a tock. There's a shape, there's a form somewhere. And the distance between the tick and the tock will sound to us like different time from the distance between the tock and the tick. Are you with me <laughs> in this not very serious uh, moment? That is the idea somewhere that we need to spread a fictional construct of some kind over time to give us a sense that it should become meaningful. The beginning and the end, the beginning and the end. Even though we know abstractly that it's exactly the same distance. When people were asked in, the, in an experiment to imitate the time gap between the tock and the tick, they couldn't do it. Only between the tick and the tock. Even though they knew that it was the same, the same distance. Are you with me? Yes. That is, there's something about being inside a structure that gives you a feeling of pace and rhythm, of punctuation, as if it all is going to mean something in the end. And what we have in Miguel Atestere, I think, exercises this question. What is going to be the ending of this book? What are we working towards? What is the miracle, in other words? What is going to be the great Gu'ula, the redemption? It's called Gu'ulat Purim in some texts, as opposed to Gu'ulat Pesach. Well, what happens at the end? Everyone remembers the last words, something about new taxation laws and, uh, and, and Mordechai being moderately, well, no, mod being, being popular among most of his people. Now, that's, that's rather faint praise. 
not, not, there isn't a real ending. So you expect something to happen at the end of all this. All right, they were saved, yes. You can say that's sufficient. That's a sufficient uh, uh, triumph. But it's not written as a triumph. It's written, it's, it tails off, it, there are repetitions. Everyone has experienced the rather long tail of Miguel Esther. You know, the last chapters that just keep going and going. Now, it's Mordechai and Esther who are the authors of this book, according to tradition. It actually is written into the book. Vatichtov Esther und Mordechai. And Esther and Mordechai wrote this book. It's kind of promoting the book there at, at the end of the book. And it's clear that Esther is the main writer because of the feminine singular verb. As we saw with Miriam, again, with Miriam and Aaron a couple of weeks ago, right, that, that she was the one who led the talking against Moshe. Now here, what we have here then, is a sense that in writing this book, they couldn't find any talk stronger than simply a kind of tail off at the end. And where the fact is, and I've, I've always wondered about this, that Rashi already in the very beginning, his first comment more or less on the book, by Hebe Meachashverosh, number four <coughs> on your page, was in the days of Achashverosh. He was the king of Persia who reigned in place of Korish, after Korish, at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. There is an ending. And Rashi has it there in his comment. You might well ask, if this is historically accurate, that's the question, was this really 70 years after the exile? In which case, it's the end of the exile. This story happens, it's coincidentally, you might say, it happens just as there is the return to Jerusalem and the temple is rebuilt. You know, with lots of failures and delays and so on. It's not, even that is not completely an epic moment. But why is that not used as an ending for, right? It's a kind of pointless question in a sense, because, well, you know, it's not. That's, that's not the choice that's made here. Why not choose an ending that will cast a backlight of meaning and of divinity in life in some sense, rather than leaving it to tail off with just the nes nistar, as it's classically called, the hidden miracle, with the emphasis on hidden, the hidden miracle of the salvation of, of, of the Jewish people. It's, 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 a, it's losing an opportunity, you might, you might say, to have a real meaningful ending. So meaning is hard to find. I want to say. Have a look also, apropos of meaning being hard to find, at number three, and I'm just pointing at certain things as we, as we go. Um, at the end of the book, we have a mysterious verse. It talks about the characters, umara u al What did they see and what happened to them? Umahigia And Rashi's comment, um, I'll just I'll read it very very uh, I'll just pull out the main point. Mara Achashverosh. What did Achashverosh see? What did he think he was doing? Something like that. What did he think he was doing when he used the holy vessels? Excuse me. Where did he use the holy vessels? There is no explicit mention in the book of his taking the holy vessels from Jerusalem and bringing them back in order to adorn his own, his own kingdom. And all that is Midrash. But here Rashi is taking it as if it's part of the story 
And the only question is, what, did, what was his motive? Mara'a. Why did he do that? Now, it's a strange question to ask, especially as the Megillah tells us not only nothing about it, it also tells us nothing about his motivations. It's as if anything Machashverosh does is an act of madness. What we precisely do not get to know about Achashverosh is what were his motives. There are no real motives. He can, he can condemn a whole people to devastation without any real motive. You'd be hard put to it, really, to say, why did he do it? That's exactly what's missing here. That is, the characters in this story, at least the, the, the bad characters in this story, are really, in a sense, mad. They're deranged in some sense. Haman, what did he think he was doing? Here's Rashi, uh, Rashi again, drawing attention to precisely what's not there in the story. Why did he, was he jealous of Mordechai? I didn't know he was jealous of Mordechai. But thereby hangs a whole Midrashic tale, which I will not embark on now, which again tries to fill in for a gap. And there is a gap in the story. So the gap is that there is no motivation. And he wasn't jealous. As far as I know, he was piqued. He, he didn't like it that, that uh, Mordechai didn't bow down to him. That's, that's all we get. And that doesn't need explaining. Um, I wouldn't like it either if I were, if I were Haman. You know, Mordechai should be bowing down to me. It's part of the rule of the country. But suddenly it's called jealousy. And we're asked, you know, we're told, and this book tells you about the motivations of these characters, when it specifically doesn't tell you about the motivations, and all this has to be filled in by Midrash. And so there is no book, other than the five books of Moses, that so badly needs Midrash. That's where I've been going. It's but perhaps more than the five books of Moses. Nitnal hidaresh, say the sages. This text was given for darshaning. <laughs> And it was given for that kind of exploratory, um, rather esoteric explanation to fill in gaps, because it's all gaps. This book is a, is a mad book. It's a book, it's a kind of book that it, with arbitrary decisions and arbitrary likes and dislikes and hatreds and executions and marriages. And it, 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 it's lacking in meaning on any level at all. And I think it's one, that's one of the reasons that pe some people devoutly dislike this text. I have to say I don't, because I'm very involved in the world of Midrash. And in some way, it really gets me going. That reading this book, in some way, opens up the wells of Midrash, the wells of the meaning you can come to if you are good at responding to hints. And that's really getting closer to the heart of what, what I have to say. Let's have a look now. <clears throat> at number five on your page. What I want to be suggesting now is that in this book in which there is no clear ending and there's no clear purpose to anything that happens here, the villains of the story, Achashverosh and Haman, are actually lustful, I would almost say, for meaning, for providential meaning. They want reassurance that they are backed by the gods, that they are backed in some way by the, by, by the, the, by the, the powers that be. Uh, for instance, have a look at number five. When, why does Haman cast lots? What's the idea of casting lots to find out when the destruction should be? We might think pure chance. But when the lot fell in the month of Adar, 
Haman rejoiced with a very great joy. Samach simcha gedola. What's he so extremely happy about? Nafal lipur beyerach shemet bo Moshe. He has got a very canny eye for meaning. He, oh, Adar, that's when Moshe, their hero, the hero of the Jewish people, that's when he died. That's a good omen for me. In other words, what he's interested in is not the fall of the dice. It's not the excitement of not knowing at all what the day would be, what will be. It, what he's looking for is powerful reassurance. He wants to draw into his, into his life the reassurance of signs and wonders and portents and other coincidences. Oh, it's in the month of Adar. That's good for me and bad for them. I must be in some way in tune with the gods, with, with, with whoever is, is in charge of the world. And that's what makes him happy. And the sages have a little laugh at him. This is a kind of quiet, a quiet smile at the, at the expense of Haman, who didn't know that on the 7th of Adar, Moshe did die, but on the 7th of Adar, he was also born. Now, there's that little laugh, yes? That's, in other words, it's not a hilarious joke, but it does, it does give you a little sense of what? That the sages are not enamored of this whole way of thinking, it seems to me. They are not looking for portents. Of course, they could simply be saying, there is a good portent here as well as a bad one. Right? The same day he was, he was born, and therefore, you know, he shouldn't be so sure of himself. But I think essentially, since it's the same day, I essentially what the, the sages are saying is, it's, it's narishkeit. <laughs> how, how do we say that in English? Uh, it, it, it's stupidity. The whole thing, to look for portents in that way, you know, is it a good day for me? Is it a bad day for me? On the whole, the sages were not in favor of that. There are some exceptions. There are things one could point to. Uh, the third day of the week is a good day to get married. Yeah, there is a, quite a tradition, uh, yeah, kitov, kitov, and, and so on. Nevertheless, in general, they do say scathing things about this way of thinking, which is in a way, try, a way of trying to ensure yourself against luck. It's a way of saying, I want my life to be immune from luck. I'm going to fortify myself with whatever fictions I can find to make me feel I'm on solid ground, precisely because I know I'm not. And I don't want to, I don't want to acknowledge that. So we have here a kind of laughter at, at Haman here. And Achashverosh, if I can just put it like that, who for seven days, which is a meaningful number, He's, separate, he's celebrating to a climax the closure of his feast, which was supposed to really make his statement, is spoiled by Vashti. Have you ever thought of it that way? That when she refuses to make her grand entrance without her royal clothes on, with her royal clothes on, I don't know exactly how you, you've, you've learned to read this, either she refuses to come altogether, or she refuses to come as the king scandalously demands of her, and that is without her clothes at all. I don't know if you've heard that one. Whatever it is, she spoils his, his fun. He was creating a meaningful event with the queen, who is a dynast, who has dynasty behind her, coming to be a kind of accessory to his glory, and he, she spoils it by refusing to cooperate. And, that is, and, he, and that's enough to, kill, to execute her for, because she has spoiled his meaningful season, his season of significance. And then we come to the heroes. What do they think about meaning and about providential endings, about God looking after us? 
the idea that somewhere one can find indications that will, will reassure one absolutely that God is with us in a time of trouble. And I come in here to <coughs> the, the beginning of chapter 2. This is after Esther. Uh, it's the middle of chapter 2. Perik bed pasuk yud alef. This is when Esther has already been taken into the king's palace. Vatilakach Esther. In case uh, I remember as a child, we used to play Esther um, with great excitement about the, the glory that, that Esther enters into and the dress-ups and, and all that. Now I find much evidence in the text that when Esther is taken, it's a day of woe for Esther. This is not her achieving her heart's desire. She is taken into the, the, the king's palace. And what does Mordechai, her uncle, do? Uvachol yom vayom, Mordechai mitalech lefnei chatzar beit anashim, ladat et shlom ester, umma yeaseba. To know. He wants to know for sure. Right? There's the word ladat. It's going to be important. He wants to know. But what does he want to know? The welfare of Esther. He wants to know how she is. And what will be done with her? Not to her. Bah. Using her in some sense. What will be done through her? And here you have on your page in number six... Um, a very striking midrash that starts, uh, the, f- the first sentence or so is missing. I'll read it. Mordechai was one of four righteous men who were given a remez, who were given a hint. And chashu. Chashu means they responded to the hint. They were sensitive. Lachush. They had a chush. This is going to be important. That is, there's a question now, not about nevuah. This is no longer the time of the prophets. It's not about having privileged knowledge of what's going to happen. Instead, Mordechai is one of four righteous people, and there are others who don't have this sense. Right? There's a whole list, the list there. Four who did and three who didn't. They were all, the other three were also given a, a hint, and they didn't, they didn't get it. But Mordechai is praised here that he was given a hint, an indication of some kind, and he got it. He, w- he was sensitive to it. Uh, what, what's the story here? He was walking around there in the Queen's courtyard um, uh, all of, uh, day by day. What was he saying? Is it possible that this righteous woman should be married to this Arel? Um, I can't translate it literally. Um, to this, to this down and out, to, to this... What did I say? Someone give me an expression. Hmm? A goy, all right, let's have that. Um, to, but it's not just that he's a goy. Arel is a real, it's a term of not thinking very much of the person. Um, Ella, he's married to this disgusting person. Ella sha'atid davar gadol liyot al Yisrael sha'atidin lehinatzel al yadeha. Such terrible things, such absurd things can't happen unless in the end she is going to be used to save her people. Now, what a, what a fiction. You know, what a hypothesis has sprung whole from Mordechai's mind. Now, he, it isn't that things are obviously leading in the direction of her taking over the government in some sense and that she's going to be good for the Jewish people. Nothing as rational as that. It's 
that if things are so very bad, if this is such a terrible mismatch, and my dear niece, let's say, um, uh, pardon, um, has got herself into such a terrible situation, married to that person, the only thing, reason it can be, ha be happening is if, if she is in some way going to be used providentially for the sake of her people. That is, in some sense, there is a deep, in, in Mordechai himself, there is some sense, I don't think, it, I don't think the sages even call it Ruach HaKodesh. It's not even, it's not an ins inspiration. It's just a sense of things. If things are really bad, then somehow there has to be some purpose. And he holds tight to that idea. But notice, it's not that he's trying to find out ahead of time so that he feels better. It's actually simply a recognition of how terrible things are. If things are so grotesque, then there must, at some point, the reason why it happened must appear. And so he's haunting the courtyard there in case there is some news. That is, the one thing he hasn't got is a prophecy. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And that's really the big difference, for instance, between Mordechai and Miriam. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we, heard, we read about Miriam who waits from afar to watch over her baby brother in the river and, she, and, and to find out le dea ma ye lo to find out what will be done to him and there the sages read it as Mordechai have, I'm sorry as uh, Miriam having had a prophetic inspiration from God and because of that, persuading her parents to reunite after they separated so that Moshe could be born and so that then afterwards, when, when in fact uh, uh, the babies have to be put in the river uh, and things look very bad, the Midrash is there on your page in the next, in the next passage. Right? Her father at first is very approving of her for, for announcing such a happy moment, the birth of the baby and the, light, the house is full of light. And then afterwards, he gives her a little slap on the head and he says, what happened to your prophecy now when the baby has to go into the river? And then we read in that verse that his sister stood afar to know what would be done to him, meaning to know what will happen to the end of her prophecy. That is, what, is the, what will the outcome be of my prophecy? I had a prophecy and it has on some level to work out. I'm just waiting to see the inevitable happy ending. Something like that. Now, Miriam can afford that because she has had a prophecy. That's a different category altogether. What we have now is people in the dark. People in the dark who don't know. And nevertheless, there is a remis. What is a remis? A remis, a hint, is the mode of, of enlightenment that follows on after prophecy finishes in historical terms. In historical terms, once Nevoah is over, once there is no more prophecy, and that's exactly at this time, we are now at the liminal moment of prophecy. Uh, in one list in the Talmud, uh, Esther is actually listed as the last of the prophetesses, even though she doesn't receive any prophecy at all. God doesn't speak to her. She's not privy to any such, such message, but she is listed as at the very edge there she is at the end of one epoch and at the beginning of, of another. What is the second epoch? That is the epoch of hints. That is, interpretations of the text. 
that what you will have is reading the text and reading reality as well. A certain sensitivity in living, living the world and responding to possibilities, opportunities. A set, not a sense of this is promised. Dai l'chakima beremiza. Are you familiar with that wonderful Talmudic expression? It's sufficient for a chacham. Right? Now is the time of chokhmah. The time of prophecy is over and the time of wisdom starts. The ability to interpret things. Uh, it's enough for a wise person if he gets a hint. A hint is enough for a wise person, which, which really says it in a cryptic way. Yeah. That is, you don't need more than a hint. You don't need more than something slight to, in fact, begin to hone your, hone your energies and your powers and your intelligence and on the very slightest of impulses, very slightest of stimuli. And that is, of course, in a way, a great loss. We, don't, we no longer have privileged information. We no longer know exactly what's going to happen in the future. But we have, there's a gain there in the sense that something is happening to the subject, to the person himself, herself. A person who is not given whole information and who's then left to work out what in reality or what in the text or what in the words is that are there to open things up for me that in some way I, and perhaps I alone, can understand, because I, only I am giving it this kind of attention. Now, you know, in general, a hint, um, when you hint <coughs> at, at a, let's say, you're, you're out with your, your, your partner, your friend at a party, and one of you just gives a slight movement of the eyes to the other, as if to say, it's time to go. I think we should leave. Now, what you hope is that no one else will notice the hint and that the other person will, will notice it and will, will, will know how to act discreetly on it. But I'm thinking then of more serious hints. I'm thinking, for instance, of Henry James. Henry James, the British novelist, writes, he writes in, on, more than, on more than one occasion of how his stories began with a mere germ the slightest, slightest stimulus from the world. Someone at a dinner, dinner table telling him a story that somehow just flicked him into life. Just in one moment, he, something about that story. And it's not as if he imports the whole story into his plan. It's just something about it. And he puts it like this. He has a very, a very vivid way of the imagery he uses. He talks about a germ that gets caught in a web of the unconscious mind like a huge spider web. I can't read my own writing, unfortunately. The huge spider web catches every airborne particle in its tissue and takes to itself the faintest hints of life. Takes to itself the faintest hints of life. Keats writes very similarly, using, also using the spider web and the sense that it doesn't take much. All it too much would be too much. I wouldn't want to have to digest you know, a ready-made plot, but there's something that gets me going. And that's what Mordechai seems to be able to respond to. And so what happens? We come back to that central chapter, chapter 4. The remarkable thing about that chapter is that once a decree has been made, and there is going to be Holocaust, right? If Holocaust is planned for a year hence. What we are going to get now is a strange secrecy about the plans. 
That is, letters go out all over the kingdom to announce this. But again, according to the Midrash, the letters are sealed. So that actually, everyone knows there's going to be a cataclysm of some kind. But no one knows exactly who is going to be doing it to whom. So there's a general nervousness. There's just a general sense of the end of days coming. Something terrible is about to happen. But no one knows their precise position. In that, in that scenario, which makes all the difference, of course. Um, now, in, in this situation, so everyone is thrown into bafflement and confusion and not knowingness. Then what does Mordechai do? Well, I'm going to tell the story a little slowly now. He dresses in sackcloth and ashes. And he walks around in the city and he comes to the palace, the palace where Esther is. He can't enter the palace because he's in sackcloth, and no one can enter the palace dressed like that. The queen hears from her girls that he's out there, and and she is deeply agitated, right? She's shaken, which again, uh, the Midrash takes very seriously. It takes that root, halul, seriously, and says, halulim, halulim, either she has a miscarriage. That is, everything opens up suddenly inside her. It's a kind of physical, it's a body reaction. A sense of terror, a sense of something very important about to be announced. And, and, and either that or yeah, various physical possibilities. And in other words, the, war, the body is full of openings, is full of vulnerabilities, of things that can open up too far. And at that moment, there's a catastrophe of some kind in her body. And then she sends a change of clothes to her, the man who has been her mainstay. He is the one who has been controlling her, in a sense. He is the one who has said, you should keep quiet about your background. And she obeyed him. Right? Do you remember that? Yes. Um, and so she, when, he hear, when she hears he's there, he wants him to come in. And he refuses to accept the clothes. Now, you might say he refuses simply because uh, he's mourning and he wants to keep that clear that there's nothing can mitigate his mourning. But it occurs to me, and I'm, I'm rather convinced of it myself, th that really he refuses to accept the clothing because he wants to conduct the conversation with Esther at a distance. It's going to be mediated by this courtier called Hatach, who's going to walk backwards and forwards, carrying messages. And everything each of them says in this dialogue is carried back and forth. You know, and, and it's made extremely clear in the text that everything becomes a message. That nothing is said directly, face to face. There is no face to face. Panim el panim between Esther and the person who is the most meaningful to her in the world, to whom she looks for guidance, is kept at a distance. That is, it's only done through messages some kind of communication system. It's done through texts. Well, it's, it's oral texts. It's a, it's a reported text. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm suggesting that, that Mordechai does this deliberately, that really what he is doing is springing her free. I'll repeat that strange phrase, springing her free. It's a phrase that came into my head, and I can't shake it. Um, that is, from being attached to him, she is going to find her own freedom. Now, she is the one who is going to make the decision, not under the influence of Mordechai's presence, with Mordechai there helping her along. 
And in fact, Mordechai, the messages he sends, are really rather aggressive. They are anything but inspiring, anything but helpful. Shall I just read a little bit of it, just to give you the, the flavor, if you don't, don't remember right away? Um, I think this will, will take you back. So there is Mordechai, and out there he had been crying the great and bitter cry, and now he tells her what has been decreed through the messenger, and tells her what he wants of her, that she should go to beg for the, the, the king for, 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 for mercy. And sometimes, and here you have Hatach coming and telling Esther the words of Mordechai. More than once, a whole verse is given simply to the transmission of the message. You know, it's as if you, you, have to take, you have to focus on transmission of message as part of the content of what's happening here. It is not a direct, not a direct communication. And she says to Hatach, uh, who then passes it on to Mordechai, another verse, two verses, two verses wasted, as it were. But everyone knows what we said before, that anyone who comes unsummoned, there's only one way it can go. Unless the king, which shows you what she thinks the odds are. In other words, she is really saying no. She's saying no. You know, she's still thinking about it, but it just seems cruel odds. There aren't any, what am I? I'm looking for suicide here. Why, why are you telling me to do this? And he answers her, you remember. He answers her, and again, there's a verse given to the transmission. And he says, Listen to those words. They've been ringing in my mind. Don't even imagine. Don't imagine in your psyche. Don't let fantasies rule you. It's, it's in a way, a very intimate and a very harsh statement. He could be her psychoanalyst for, for, for all. You know, he's saying, don't let the fantasy take you that disaster will come to the Jews and you and the house of your father will be saved because you are in the palace. It won't be like that. There will be salvation. will come from somewhere. Doesn't mean that he knows for sure at all. Somewhere else, and you and the house of your, your, your father will, be, will perish. Now, Again, how does he know that? It's the worst scenario. He is simply pressing on her the reality in its most unflattering colors and telling her no fantasy. Don't even imagine that there's an escape route for, from, from facing this. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, me or dea, and who knows, maybe it was for just such an it, just such a moment, a crisis, that the whole story happened. Now, the whole, whole of the Megillah. Uh, this, by the way, is the twelfth year of the of the king's reign. Have you been? Do you, do you do you remember the chronology? The story begins in the third year of his reign. Vashti is killed in the seventh year, and the drama with Jewish people happens in the twelfth year. What an unmeaningful time span! <laughs> Nine years go to waste. Somewhere there in the middle. Nothing important happens. And then suddenly, you know, there's this and there's this and there's this. Without any particular sense of momentum of one thing being related to another thing. And you may not read the Megillah backwards. That is a halakha that you can read in the Gemara, in my Megillah. You might love to read the Megillah backwards. <laughs> to start with salvation. And no, oh, what, have you ever looked at the end of a book? to find out what happens if you're in anguish, you know, and you can't bear the interim in between. 
the Megillah is no different. Not going to help you. In a sense, the ending will not really help you to find meaning. So, but don't read it backwards and don't read it out of order. If you do, lo yatsa. You haven't, you, are, you haven't fulfilled your, your, the mitzvah. So you have to inexorably be following this meaningless time, time scheme, as it were. And, when, and, and, and who knows, maybe it was for just this crisis that you came into the, into the palace. And then Esther replies again, and this time she is in charge. She says, go and gather all the Jews and pray for me, fast for me. Right? She tells them to fast for her. And, and we will fast three days. And the Ibn Ezra makes a comment. <laughs> it's a very Ibn Ezra comment. He says, but that's bad for your looks. <laughs> Fasting is not the thing to do if you want the king to like you. Especially this king, apparently. And she's not doing herself a favor. Why fast of all things? And the answer he gives comes from a midrash, a uh, psikhtarabati. Um, no, it's not psikhtarabati. Um, and it goes like this. Shalom yom ru Yisrael. That Israel shouldn't say, achot yeshlanu bebet melech We have a, a sister in the king's house. We have one of us in the king's house. And then they will distract themselves from midata rachamim, milavakesh rachamim, from asking for mercy. Do you understand what that, what, what that says? The one thing that people are not supposed to be thinking is it was all planned so that we would have one of us in there. And isn't, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it such a beautifully planned plot that things can, will turn out just as you might, your fantasies might have had it? Instead, that is fantasy. Right? In a way, that's dismissed as belonging to the world of fantasy. All right, you can still say it did happen that way, and she was able to intervene in that way. But that's not what one should be counting on. What one should be counting on is a sense of reality, a sense of the real nature of things, and a relationship with God that's called tefillah. That is, you only ask for mercy if you appreciate the full gravity. Of, of what's happening. This, this is a, a recipe, the other is a recipe for living lightly, for living without anything really, really affecting you. Oh, we've got a sister in there. Oh, it's all taken care of. You know, we've got protectia. They shouldn't be thinking that. And the queen, likewise, she is not going to do this canny thing and make herself look beautiful, beautiful. She is going to fast because that's more important to her than how she looks. In other words, what's being rejected here is what's called, um, by some people, specularity. The idea of things being seen, that that's all that matters. That two faces look at each other, and that's how communication takes place. I am convinced by the powerful presence of the other person. You know what it's like to look into someone's face. Instead, we are in an area of hester, where faces are hidden, and logics are hidden, and easy solutions. Are, are hidden. And one is left with some kind of core of things. And the core of things has Esther, Batilbash Esther Malchut. She clothes herself in clothes of royalty. All right, that's, that's one thing. On which the sages say, again the Midrash, he, she dressed herself in Rocha Kodesh. That is, in some sense, inwardly, she is trying to be with God. From her point of view, 
she is, she's feeling inspired, she's thinking in some way, she's, she is inspired now, and this is going to be some kind of great moment. And then, nistalka mimena shchina. And then the presence of God abandons her. Now that's a really cruel turn of the screw. To represent the cruelty of life itself, it seems to me. This Megillah is, is not a legend, you know, it's not, it's not an instructive tale. It has nothing of what James Kugel calls biblical glow about it. It doesn't have that glow of the confidence of a, in a meaningful ending as you're in the middle, when, when you're right in the middle. And so in that state, she walks in to the king. And that's her heroism. And what she's doing at that moment is finding a way of living the moment fully in all its undetermined nature. There is no way that she or anyone can know at that point. And then what happens? The king stretches out his scepter and then begins the, the last part of the story. And so I want to add one or two things to what is the greatness of Esther? What is it that she, <clears throat> that she manages to, to live through there at the end? There's a, there's a tendency in the Midrash to say things like, an angel came, this is, this, this is a little strange, yeah? an angel came and got hold of the scepter and just tilted it toward Esther. <laughs> or later in the scene with Ahasuerus and Haman, where Esther incriminates Haman, you know, and Haman falls on her bed to beg, to beg for, you know, of all the ill-advised things to do, to, to beg the, for, for mercy, and the, and the king comes in just at and finds her. Um, there also, the Midrash will say, uh, an angel pushed Haman onto the bed, on, onto the couch. In other words, the air is filled with demons in some way. The air is filled with forces. I've called it unconscious forces. You know, people don't know, they don't have complete charge of, how, of who they are and how things are going to turn out. But somewhere, even if Ahasuerus would have wanted to stretch out the scepter, he's helped along a little bit by something that is, he hasn't exactly decided. Somewhere, it's in these very small gestures, in these, these moments, that fates are decided. The fact that Haman falls on her bed. You know, who could have predicted that that's what he would do? But there is something about Haman that maybe once he's fallen on the bed, you can understand that there might be, he might be hospitable to that angel. Somewhere that angel belongs to him. That's, that makes some kind of sense as far as, as far as Haman is concerned. And so what we have, <clears throat> excuse me, in the end is a sense of Esther dealing with reality, what Ernest Becker calls um, and Ernest Becker in his great book, The Denial of Death, he calls the ability to strip oneself of the vital lies, the vital lies of, of the character armor, the way in which we construct ourselves as a character of a certain kind, and therefore give ourselves a fiction and give ourselves a story to live by. What happens to Esther is that at the crucial moment, she loses all her stories. There is no story to support her. There is no hopeful fiction. And therefore, she is left in the truth of her human situation. In that truth, she cries out to God what people have always cried out to God in the truth of the human situation, and in the hard truth, and that is, Keli, Keli, Lama, Zaftani. 
uh, as you know, it's been adopted in, in many other places as well. Now, that sense of a certain kind of authenticity is what Esther achieves. Her self, her subjectivity, becomes quite different through this event than what it was when she was Mordechai's niece, who was just taken into the palace without any kind of without any kind of spiritual or intellectual preparation for what would, what would face her. And suddenly she is schooled, what does Kierkegaard say? Schooled in the school of dread. I know that doesn't sound very cheerful, but there is such a, there is such a thing. Schooled in the school of dread, which paradoxically opens up possibilities. That once you've hit that place, then there is a kind of opening up of possibilities of a different kind. You're no longer wearing false armor. You're no longer, um, if I can find the, the expression, it talks about breaking the bounds of a merely cultural heroism, shedding the ca character I armor, the character lie, and acknowledging creatureliness. There's no prayer like the prayer of a broken heart. Does the Kotzker say, or Mendel of Kotzk, uh, there's no prayer as whole as the prayer of a broken heart. Now, the idea of brokenness as representing some kind of honesty and some kind of wholeness. It's an acknowledgement of fragility. It's the opposite of, I'm really something. The Maharal gives us an example of it, and with that, I think we'll finish. Have a look at number nine on your page. Number nine. Yes. Why does she cry out, cry out Keli, Keli, Lama Azaftani? Why? Why and when? Number nine. So, uh, so Maharal in Orchadash says, on the first day, right, she fasted for three days. On the first day, she didn't cry out, Keli, my God, because it was only the first day. On the second day, she still didn't cry out because it was only the second day. But on the third day, she cried out, my God, my God, because God doesn't abandon the righteous for longer than three days. Now, this needs unpacking. There's a principle based on stories in the Torah, Torah and Tanakh, about how suffering lasts maximum of three days. Yes. When Sarah, for instance, is kidnapped, yeah, by Avimelech, by Paro, I don't remember Avimelech, yeah, she is there for three days. So there's a three-day maximum. It's meaningful time. That's the way it is in the Bible. And at first, Esther thinks she still belongs to that model of meaningful time. And therefore, she doesn't have to cry out in despair to God. She's still living with that fiction, as it were. One day, two days... But three days, she's gone out of that fiction. She's now stepped out of the fiction, and she's no longer protected by it. And in that state, she cries out, and it's that, at that moment that her creatureliness comes to the fore, who she is in the presence of God. And she cries out to God. Similarly, similar midrash that the Maharal pays attention to, she cries to God, and she says, the order of the world, sidro shel olam, has changed in my lifetime. In my lifetime, everything has changed. It's, I'm right at the, at the border here. Up to now, look what happened. 
Sarah was three days, was a short time in the house of, of, of um, Avimelech, let's say. Yes, of Avimelech. And she was saved. You saved her right away. You didn't let her suffer. And I've been all these years. It's a different way of cutting the story. I've been all these years living with this person. Where have you been all this time? In other words, it's not just a personal cry to God. It's a cry to God of people who live in the age we live in. That's when our age began. That was the crack. That was the end of the time. And strangely, she is called the last prophetess, in that list anyway. Um, she's the last prophetess because she has some of the marks of someone who is trying to detect, who's trying to detect in reality the presence of God. But she's already over the line. She's over the line and she marks that position by crying out to God, Lama Azaftani. My God, my, right? It's a way of saying, it's a way of saying, I'm related to you, you're my God. It's not, not an abstraction. You're my God, so why have you left me here? Why have you left me high and dry? And that's a dark moment. Let me just have a quick glance with you at Ruff Whitner. It won't take us long. Number 10. He wants to make the point that Purim is always just before Pesach. A month, even in a leap year. In a leap year, it'll be in Adar Sheni. So there's not more than a month between the two, so that we think of Purim and Pesach as a set. And then he has this wonderful sentence. He says, um, to recognize, he says there are two, there are two Anochis, one in the redemption of Pesach, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's one Anochi of God. The other Anochi of God is, as we've seen, Anochi Haster Asterit Panai. I will indeed hide my faith. And the two are kept together so that we are aware of the difference between the two. And he uses an image then of someone who on a very dark night is asked to identify someone else, his friend. The obvious thing to do is to get a candle or some kind of device, a torch, and use the, the flickering shadows, the, 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 the compromised light, to try to identify the face of the other person. The other strategy would be to acknowledge that it's dark and not play with candles, but to teach oneself, that's how, that's how he puts it, to teach oneself to acquire a new talent. Kisharon Chadash, Chush Acher, another sensibility, which would be the sensibility of listening to the person's voice. Not trying to mess around with light in the dark, you know, which will which, which won't, it'll be a very incomplete kind of revelation, um, but actually to accept the conditions and try to find a way of evolving one's own subjectivity so that one is more sensitive to what can be known about the other person in the dark. So that when the end of days comes and the revelations will be stronger 70 times the light of the sun, he says, that's when we drop all the other festivals and all the other miracle stories. Because who needs miracle? those little miracle stories in view of that great revelation at the end of days, times of the Messiah? But, the, but what will not cease 
will be what is suggested in the Purim story, which is a new sensibility. It's a new way of being. Anochi haster asterit panai. The visual will be gone, however you understand that, and instead one will open one's ears. We'll open our ears to things that you can either hear or not hear, depending on how good your, both your hearing and your, and your meaning-making is. And he calls this the acquisition of an alternative sense, as if, as if that's really what we've gained through what began with the Purim story, which is life in Galut, life in a decentered and alienated uh, existence in which God is not easily to be found anywhere holding the, the reins of power. What we are left with then is the sensibility and the subjectivity that has educated itself, has, has, has evolved uh, in some way uh, to be sensitive to the signs of God, to the sounds of God um, in life as well as in text. And therefore, at the end of days, the times of the Messiah, we will forever, in a way, want to keep that, those, those memories with us because that's how we grew to become what we were to become as a result of this experience. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Pardes Live in miniseries featuring Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780, Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org.